Counter with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Commissioner of Police of the Metropolis and DSD, and the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 11. Now one of the most high-profile and controversial cases in recent months was the parole board decision to release the black cab rapist John Warboys from prison after he had only served 10 years of his sentence. The parole board felt that there was enough evidence to release Warboys in spite of his 19 offences against a total of 12 victims, and the shock and outrage in the press led to the decision being overturned in the High Court, the resignation of the head of the parole board, and even questions surrounding the position of the Secretary of State for Justice, David Gork. The case that we are looking at today does relate back to John Warboys, however it does not concern the decision of the parole board, but rather the initial investigation by the Metropolitan Police, whose failure to catch Warboys during his spree from 2003 through to 2008 also attracted widespread criticism and allegations of structural failings within the force. The other parties to the case, DSD, is the pseudonym for one of the earliest victims from 2003, and she brought the action alongside MBV, who had been attacked in 2007. The response to the attack on MBV was the most worrying, because the 19-year-old student had been forcibly drugged, and when she woke up the following day, her tampon had been removed. Despite the traces of drugs in the victim's blood, the police instead chose to believe Warboy's story that the student was drunk and came on to him. The CPS were never informed about this, Warboy's was instead released on bail and the case later dropped. In the meantime, many more assaults were committed and it was only after a media appeal that Warboy's was arrested in February 2008. This present case was brought on the basis that the police had failed to carry out an effective investigation into the crime and that the effect was a breach of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the prohibition of torture or inhuman or degrading treatment. For the purposes of interpreting the law in this area, this throws up a number of interesting questions for the courts to answer, including whether Article 3 includes a positive obligation, i.e. does the state have to actively take some action, and if so, whether the positive obligation extends to include the investigation of crimes committed by private individuals. The High Court and the Court of Appeal both found that there had been a breach of Article 3, and so it was the police who were forced to appeal to the Supreme Court where we pick up the case. Interestingly, the police were not seeking to get the compensation back from the victims, most likely because this would be a terrible move publicity-wise, but instead wanted the Supreme Court to set a clear precedent on this matter for the future. In the end, the precedent is probably not as clear as the police would have liked, because while there was a unanimous decision that there had been a breach of Article 3, the precise nature of the state's positive obligation remains something of a mystery. In fact, from the five judges, there were four quite distinct judgments given. The main point of contention was whether the obligation related to operational failures within specific investigations, or whether it only applied to broader systematic failings associated with legal and law enforcement structures. Lord Hughes began his judgement by noting that the case law derived from the European Court on Human Rights is rather vague when it comes to the nature of the duty to investigate under Article 3. 
With that in mind, the only thing that we can say with any certainty is that the state has an obligation to, at the very least, put proper structures in place for the investigation and punishment of crimes. It is much more difficult to say that the state's liability can extend to failures within specific investigations. On the other hand, Lord Kerr, who gave the lead judgment, held that in order to find a breach of Article 3, the court does not have to uncover systemic failings, but the mistakes made in any investigation have to be sufficiently serious to attract liability. Lord Newberger agreed with this and added that there is nothing in existing case law to suggest that a breach of Article 3 has to be linked to structural failings within the administration of justice. Lady Hale also agreed with Lords Kerr and Newberger to establish a majority behind this position. Before we move on, the other justice involved in this case was Lord Mance, who felt that the distinction drawn between systemic and operational failings was no longer especially useful, and that courts should instead examine how serious the error is in each case, and find a breach of Article 3 wherever there is a serious failing by the state. One of the other interesting arguments raised in this case was its relationship with the law of tort. Those of you who have studied the law of tort will be aware from cases such as Hill and Chief Constable of West Yorkshire 1987 that in general the police do not owe a duty of care to the public and so the question is whether this principle extends to human rights law and in particular claims made under the Human Rights Act 1998. In order to answer this question Lord Hughes examined the reasons why there is no tortious duty of care and this led him to the public policy reasons that have previously been advanced. The investigation of crime is especially sensitive and requires law enforcement bodies such as the police to make difficult decisions in difficult circumstances. They will not always make the perfect choices, but in order for the police to be effective and not act in a defensive manner when it comes to police work, it is necessary for them to be given broad discretion. This reasoning applies to the common law of tort, but the same policy arguments can also be effectively advanced in relation to human rights claims as well. It doesn't matter on what basis the claim is made, it remains imperative that the police should be allowed to effectively do their job without the fear of legal repercussions at every turn. Analysing the role of the police in this way also supported Lord Hughes's earlier conclusion that liability under Article 3 should only apply to those broader structural failings. Once again, however, Lord Kerr, alongside Lord Newberger and Lady Hale, took a different approach and held that the rules that apply in the law of tort do not necessarily translate across to human rights law so easily. When it comes to tort, we are dealing with the common law, and the foundation for any liability rests on a duty of care. But just because the police do not owe a duty of care, that does not necessarily mean that the policy reasons which allow for this can still apply when we are instead talking about a statutory duty under the Human Rights Act 1998. When it comes to analysing this case, the first thing to say is that no one should be surprised that the police have a duty to investigate in the context of Article 3 of the Convention. It's actually hard to believe that this was still an open question, given that it has long been known that there is an equivalent duty under Article 2, the right to life, and there's no reason why this obligation should not translate across. Both rights fall within the remit of criminal law, 
and there is a general expectation that in order to properly protect these rights, a state's administration of justice should be set up in such a way so that breaches, including those by private citizens, can be investigated and punished. The circumstances in which this duty will be breached presents a much more nuanced issue. Do the failings in any case have to be structural, or can a breach occur because of significant mistakes within a given investigation? I think that the important point to remember here is that whatever the decision it will be for the lower courts to apply the definition to future claims. This is why Lord Mance's approach that focuses on the seriousness of the breach is quite attractive, because it is something that can be evidenced and a standard can be applied to the law enforcement bodies. On the other hand, any attempt to identify structural failings within the justice system as a whole, as suggested by Lord Hughes, is not only much more difficult but it is also rather vague and open to politicisation. It may also turn out to be the case that structural deficiencies are so hard to pinpoint that the result is de facto immunity for the police when it comes to the duty to investigate. By focusing instead on operational issues as per the majority, or even failings of serious importance, there is a concrete standard that can be measured against and a way for those who have been the victims of mistakes made by the police to be properly compensated. This brings us on to the next point as the natural question is, why then is there no duty of care owed by the police for common law negligence? At first glance this might seem unfair as there are similarities between both of these types of claims. They both involve failings by the police that cause injury to a private citizen who is seeking compensation. However, there are also important distinctions as well. Tortious liability exists at common law, but the duty under the human rights law is contained in statute. We can even put this in a slightly different way to make the point even clearer. A human rights violation is much more serious than mere negligence. It is true that there are strong policy reasons that operate against the idea of imposing any sort of liability on the police. But before any legal system chooses to do that, there has to be careful consideration of both sides. Reducing the liability places less of a burden on law enforcement and prevents defensive policing. But if we go too far in this direction, it removes accountability from a state body that has a lot more interactions with private citizens than most. This is not to say that the police will automatically become more reckless without the possibility of legal repercussions, but we surely have to think twice before nearly excluding liability completely for breaches of fundamental human rights. One of the core principles that underpins police work is the protection of the public, but if the public cannot themselves directly hold the police to account for failures in this regard, then there is a clear imbalance in the system. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to the UK Law Weekly podcast, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. Thanks as ever to everyone who rates and reviews the podcast on iTunes. We're nearly up to 50 um, ratings and reviews now, so that is really appreciated. Helps to spread the word. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that we're the number one law podcast in the UK, which is um, very exciting indeed. Particular thanks to Mike STB and Ali Camdentown, 
who both left reviews very recently, um, and they were both five-star reviews, which is even better. I'll be back next week with another case, but in the meantime, bye! Thank you.